Well, a good day to all of our listeners. Uh, thanks uh, once again for joining us for our Ben's podcast, Five Questions with the CEO. Uh, I'm General Joe Votel. I'm the CEO and president of Ben's, and I'm very, very glad to, to welcome you today. We try to use this podcast to talk with our members around the country, learn more about their careers, learn more about their expertise, and, uh, and learn more about their experience with Ben's. Uh, as many of you are aware, uh, this is our, our first uh, uh, podcast in the month of March. And March, of course, is, of course, is Women's History Month. And I'm very pleased that Ben's member, Dr. Kathleen Kiernan, is joining us today for this very special uh, uh, podcast. Uh, Dr. Kiernan is the uh, president of NEC National Security Systems, uh, a, subsidiary, a subsidiary of NEC Corporation of America. Uh, and uh, this is an organization that uh, provides world-class biometric and identity, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and computer vision applications for federal government agencies in defense, intelligence, law enforcement, and homeland security agencies. And we'll talk with her a little bit more about that in a few moments. Uh, Kathleen is a 29-year veteran of federal law enforcement. She is a recognized expert in strategic thinking, strategy development, and facilitating critical uh, incident management exercises across the government and private sector organizations. She's also the founder and CEO of Kiernan uh, Group Holdings, a, women, a woman-owned global consulting firm specializing in intelligence, law enforcement, and national security. Previously, uh, she served as the assistant director for the Office of Strategic Intelligence and Information for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, uh, more commonly known as ATF. Um, she's a recipient of numerous awards over the years, uh, to, including the American Security Today Platinum Award for Best Educational Program in Homeland Security in 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. She's also an adjunct faculty member of the Johns Hopkins School of Education and the Center for Homeland Defense and Security at the Naval Postgraduate um, School. She holds a, a Doctor of Education from Northern Illinois University, a master's degree in international trans, uh, transaction from George Mason University, and a master's of science from, uh, from the Joint Military Intelligence College. Uh, Kathleen, welcome. We're, we're so glad to have you today. Thank you, sir, and thank you for a wonderful and warm introduction. <laughs> Great, it's we're, we're glad to have you. And uh, and first off, I want to wish you a wonderful uh, uh, Women's History Month here in the in the month of uh, March 2022. We're we're really glad to have you for us. This so let's start with uh, let's start with that. Um, you. Uh, have served 29 years in federal law enforcement and uh, rose to the position of assistant director of intelligence at ATF there. As we as we celebrate Women's History Month uh, this March here, can, can you reflect on some of the challenges and perhaps some of the accomplishments throughout your career and what it means to have blazed a trail for other women uh, in law enforcement? Uh, I think we should just note for the audience that the ATF has recently had a had a, a, a woman serve as the director, Regina Lombardo. Um, so can you can you can you share a few thoughts on that? Oh, certainly. And, and thanks for the question, General. As to Regina, 
who I recruited as a young agent in Miami. She was born to lead. She really needed nothing else from anyone but to accept that challenge of leadership. She came on in the heyday of the height of gun and drug violence in Miami and earned her way through every single chair that she sat in. So it was with great pleasure that I watched her progress through the ranks to the rank of director, which is truly historical. Um, so a great pleasure there. Uh, I came on in 1978, and at that time in ATF, we had only 12 women across the whole organization. And we went down at, at our low point to only six. So you can anticipate that there were issues, just the integration, because you're talking about really cultural and contextual change. And it was fascinating to just, certainly upon reflection, but living through it, fascinating to watch the dialogues and how do we fit women with bulletproof vests? How do we change requirements at the academy and should we? How do we integrate them into undercover and other roles? But let me start at the academy level. I remember in my new agent class, the discussion was, should we change the physical requirement? Should we change from pull-ups that the men had to pass in a proficiency test to chin-ups? And should we eliminate the boxing requirement? And my class said, absolutely not, because if you change the requirements at this fundamental level, you'll always be treated differently throughout the rest of your career. And there's so many lessons to be learned from offensive and defensive training. And if you can't take a punch and get knocked down, then you're not going to be able to do that for the rest of your life and business. So um, we, we were steadfast and let's not change the requirements. Let us earn our way. And... So I, I only look back with pleasure of seeing those changes be instituted early and, and people treated equally. Uh, that's a fantastic response. I, I just love what you had to say there about Regina, who I've had the opportunity to meet. And, uh, you know, I, it, uh, I, as I reflect on my own career here, I, you know, I, I think there's no greater uh, pride than seeing people that uh, you, you, you know, that you serve with rise up and come through the ranks and really take on great leadership. And, uh, and, uh, and I really liked your comments about the standards as well as uh, I've seen this in the military. I think it's, I think it's true that people, don't want to be treated as something unique or separate from everybody else, and uh, and it's a really important point to uh, point to point to, I think to reflect on. So let's talk a little bit about ATF, and uh, you know, from your perspective, how have the demands on ATF special agents and and their other employees changed over time? And maybe could you share some thoughts about the importance of expanding uh, opportunities for diverse candidates to join and advance uh, the ATF? workforce um, in order to help keep the country safe? Sure. And that's another great question, sir. As in all law enforcement, the scrutiny has never been at a higher level of law enforcement, whether uniformed or not. Uh, and we're in an increasingly complex and, and emergent threat world. Sadly, uh, in fact, I was just having a conversation with the executive director of Nolly just before this podcast, and we were talking about the implications of police suicide and PTSD and the lack of retention, people choosing to leave the profession versus fighting to get in and recruitment at an all-time low. 
So, and then law enforcement officers being targets of aggression from misinformed or malinformed individuals. So going about doing their regular jobs and being targeted because of the profession they chose. Sadly, we're seeing that across the first responder community where even firefighters are being shot at and targeted and, and abused. So um, it's not just ATF, it's all of law enforcement. I'm happy to say that there's a new focus on, on employee wellness and getting the counsel which used to be, and I'm, I'm guessing it was the same in the military, it used to be a sign of weakness if you needed peer support or counseling, uh, and now it's looked at as a sign of strength. You know, be able to recognize that if somebody is suffering or is having an issue, that there are resources available, and it's okay to go and, and seek those out and, and to rebuild the strength and the honor of the profession. Yeah, that's uh, that's such a great message, and the you know the the uh, insidious uh, power of uh, of stigma is so strong in these situations where people are disincentivized from getting the help that they need. And and uh, you know, I, I, in my own experience, I you know I certainly saw that in the military having to overcome that. And I, that's certainly the case with our law enforcement, as you pointed out, in much in in, in much broader uh, broader perspective. I mean, they are in contact every day. Uh, uh, you know, in our communities, and uh, and so bear those uh, significant costs that come along with it. So thanks for, thanks for that message. Um, you know, as one of our one of our nation's uh, foremost experts in threat detection, strategic thinking, and strategy development, you've had the opportunity to lead exercises for senior leaders in both the public and private sector on for critical incident management. I wonder if you can share some stories or some examples of the settings that. That you uh, that you encountered, what kind of stood out for you, what you learned about that, and and why that is so important to to do in advance of of these situations taking place. Oh, great question! I, I learned an awful lot, uh, brought an awful lot to that capability from the law enforcement career because you have an opportunity to see people at their very best and also at their very worst. So I approached this idea with a, the sense of almost a modern steganography and a looking for what is often hidden in plain sight and it becomes invisible to the untrained eye. So what that really means is sometimes we obviate out what we think we know or what we control. Who would have thought before that we would drive a fully occupied airplane into a fully occupied building? We just didn't, we didn't allow ourselves to think that. And we thought that we had everything somewhat um, exercised and under control and, and we learned that we didn't. And when we, we don't look at what's hidden in plain sight, we miss those early indications and warning, I think, of potential insider threat of trajectory towards violence that are there, but we just don't see them. And if we look back in history at the classic cases of uh, Robert Hansen and others, they we accepted them into organizations because they had gone through the same kinds of training and the same kinds of organizational affiliations, and we just never thought it would happen in our own house. And we see that play out in uh, the government still and in the private sector for sure. So what we try to do is we bring together different kinds of thinkers that you wouldn't normally put in the same room together. We call this, by the way, there's a Latin term for it called uh, vocifere versuti, but what that translates roughly to is crafty bastards. 
and we bring people that are not, and it, it really is a methodological approach, not doctrinally locked. We give them permission to color outside the lines, not, you know, obviously um, within legal bounds and to look at things with a different perspective, a different optic, and not look at the problems closest to the sled, but to look at what what were the contributing factors, a catalyst to, to get you in this position. General Clapper taught me many, many years ago how he approached life, and he said, listen, Kathleen, I put smart people in the now, you know, what's right in front of us and what can we solve? I put a different kind of thinker in the next. I want them to anticipate for me two to three years down the road, what is what is on the horizon? Then I put my really different kinds of thinkers in the after next, seven to 10 years down the road. What is the world going to look like? What are the factors that we should consider that we're not looking at now because of the tyranny of the urgent? And it's I had the opportunity to interview General Clapper for one of my master's theses and, and obviously had an opportunity to work in and around and for him over the years. And I always use that methodological approach. Look beyond the immediate and see what those threat issues are. So in this crafty bastard approach, which we've done throughout the government, we would bring picture naval special warfare operators with rock musicians, gamers, uh, and even a pickpocket, world-class pickpocket who's an expert in the art of diversion. Because we wanted people to be able, everybody to be able to look at the world the way an adversary might and to see what an adversary sees and exploits, kind of the David versus the Goliath. And then what could we learn from that? And uh, the results have been extraordinarily compelling. Sadly, I can't talk about them on the podcast because a lot of those for the gov- in the government space were classified. But the ones in the private sector on, on border issues and for TSA and others, it was really getting people to think differently and to look for those threats hidden in plain sight. It's, it's been a, a great pleasure to do that. Well, that's uh, that's that's fascinating. I loved uh, hearing about uh, about Jim Clapper, one of my favorite uh, favorite guys, and it's a really a strong reminder, I think, of the importance of embracing mavericks, people to think differently and look at things differently in your overall approach to the problems you're trying to solve. And uh, I just love the way uh, you laid that uh, laid that out. So today uh, you're doing some, you do a lot of consulting, advising, and managing risk. And of course, as we've seen just in the last 24 hours, the environment environment out here is pretty fast-paced and data-driven and uh, and everything else, uh, a very, very complex environment. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the concept of strategic patience and why you believe this is such an important uh, characteristic in, in risk management? Oh, of course. And on a, on a funny note, I think I learned strategic patience as the only girl with four brothers uh, growing up to survive childhood. I had to be patient. And then go. I had to learn to run really, really fast. But uh, on the job, I, I learned strategic patience from un- unusual folks, uh, some that I think you probably wouldn't anticipate. And that was criminals and terrorists. I had an opportunity to lead a big project for DOD over gosh, five years to look at the suicide methodological approach in the last tactical half mile. So not the cause of who recruited, but what behaviorally did it look like? And the ground research was all done in Israel, Palestine, and Sri Lanka. And I I always credit the Tamil Tigers in a way for teaching me strategic patience because they were so good at it. They were so good at target selection. They were so good at training and relentless attention to detail. 
they permeated single East society with folks that were observers, but were unobserved by everyone else. They were the ones that we we see there, but we don't really pay attention to sometimes. They're the street cleaners and the laundrymen and the laundry, uh, lorry drivers and the newspaper vendors. But they were there to do a persistent surveillance and, and, and mostly ignored. And they had the strategic patience to emplace people and sometimes wait up to two years to to hit a target. In the the case of the president's uh, assassination, that's what they did. There was uh, an interesting story. I interviewed the handler of a young woman who who was, her main mission was to go kill a particular minister. And she tried twice and wasn't able to get close to him. The third time he was to pray at a certain temple. So they put a sign around her neck that said she was a deaf mute. And that enabled her to get to the entrance of the temple, because generally speaking, we we tend to want to help people that we think are lesser enabled. And we don't look at them ever as a threat. He didn't go to worship that day. She had him a week later at an uh, open theater. Um, But what it taught me again about strategic patience, she didn't just do collateral damage. She went back and she went back again and again and again until she achieved her target. So the the attention to detail, the deliberate targeting, the hiding in plain sight, the degree of false pregnancies, the, the deaf mute piece, the way that they dressed to assimilate, they were a formidable adversary. And, and I learned a lot. There was one other quick story, and that was the young man. He was a doctor, and he was still in custody at the time. His wife did not know that he was a black tiger. Um, and I, I said, when we were finished with our formal interview, I said, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you another question. He said, of course. And I said, how did this square up with your Hippocratic oath that you were able to do what you did and and go and kill people and use captured soldiers for their blood and everything else he said it was i didn't see it as a conflict at all and that that mindset was actually rather frightening but that's what i I, yeah i learned from the bad guys Uh, wow yeah i learned from the bad guys how they they look for weakness and they exploit it and then of course that extrapolates out to how child predators act and and the rest of people who victimize they look for weakness and then they exploit it absolutely fascinating thanks for thanks for sharing that so over the last uh, over the last six months or so you've been busy helping launch a new subsidiary of the NEC corporation called NEC national security systems which you now lead as their president and CEO can you tell us a little bit about NEC uh, national security systems and their signature technologies and the power of its biometric and artificial intelligence offerings Oh, of course. And and sincerely, it was love at first sight. I was very busy and very happy doing what I do and, and had the call to say, we need some help here. We're in the process of going through the foci mitigation and we need someone that is cleared and accepted across the military intelligence and law enforcement communities. Would you consider coming on as interim president for three or four months? And about a month in, they said, we'd actually like you to stay and and help us to build this organization. So it has been a great pleasure. In fact, I serve with some of your former colleagues, General Frank Taylor and Dr. Michael Vickers, and they're on our outside board of directors with Kay Kapoor and just bring strategic guidance and leadership to us. So the idea of working with a company that services the communities I love, 
intelligence, law enforcement and the military was just, it, it was a perfect match for me. Can we build, and we do, can we build the capabilities to enable the, those that protect us and build a safer world? So it was just, it was absolutely a natural. We're just finishing the foci mitigation piece and that will allow us to just bring greater resources into the, the classified space in the government. And we, we have a number of government customers, but now we can operate at a higher level. So that should be in place here in the next, gosh, 30 or 45 days. So pretty excited about that. Signature technologies, I think you talked about them, General, in the, in the beginning. It, it's all about machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the suite of biometric capabilities. So not just face recognition, but a multimodal verification. And how can you bundle these capabilities to protect bases, to protect buildings, to protect people, um, we do a lot of anomaly detection, advanced analytics, uh, of course, ranked person in the world by NIST. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that about our biometric capabilities. But we've been in the artificial intelligence business before it was cool and building capabilities and algorithms for the, for the past half century. And I think what distinguishes us um, and I'm very proud of is we listen to requirements. We don't think that just because we build something interesting, the military or intelligence or law enforcement is going to accept it. And having having been on the other side of that, I, I want something built that we can actually use practically, not something that, that looks interesting but has no practical application. So I have a great team who does that and they integrate with the customers and they don't make any presumptions about what a wall fighter needs or a street cop needs or an intelligence community professional needs. We're doing lots with smart city initiatives and fiber optics and having fun in the process. Uh, we have 10 national labs, so we get to co-create with the private sector. So I'm, I'm really having a great time. Wow, labor of love. That sounds great, Kathleen. Mm -hmm. Holy mackerel. That is, uh, that's wonderful. So one, one last question for you today. What, uh, what brought you to Ben's? Oh my gosh, that's probably the easiest question you asked me. Um, to me, Ben's the organization just epitomizes thought leadership service and has a clear vision that's undaunted by complex challenges. And you converge the best thinkers from the public and private sector and you have a degree of unassailable trust. And that was that is hard earned and, and it, you've had it forever. Uh, the organization has had it over the past 40 years. That's uh, that's great. Thanks, and we're so we're so glad to have you, Kathleen, in our in our member ranks here, and we really appreciate you being such a such a great member and the very unique expertise you bring to our uh, to our problem solving on behalf of our government partners. So thanks uh, thanks uh, thanks very much for joining us today, and uh, thanks for thanks for being such a great Ben's member. No, sir, my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity. Great. Thanks very much. And to our listeners, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. We've been talking with Dr. Kathleen uh, Kiernan, the president of NEC National Security Systems and a BENS member. Uh, and uh, I hope that you enjoy the, today's podcast and we look forward to presenting to you uh, more episodes here in the future. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.